Today we're kicking off a three-part series about the soon-to-be-released NARPM accounting standards. We're going to be talking with Danny Craig, my partner in crime at ProfitCoach and the primary architect behind the NARPM accounting standards. We're going to hear about why it matters, what it means to the industry, and how it has the potential to transform how this industry relates to finance. In this first episode, we're going to do a high-level overview. In the following two episodes, we're going to go more in-depth on some of the specific aspects and nuance of what's actually included in the NARPM accounting standards. Lastly, if you're going to be at NARPM Broker Owner this year, we're throwing a party on Monday night to celebrate the release of the NARPM accounting standards. Come join us. We're going to link to that in the show notes. We'd love to see you out there. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, closers. This is the Profitable Property Management Podcast, coming at you live. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and this is the place to come for weekly interviews with world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who open up and share their secret sauce so that you can apply their knowledge to grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100, 1,000, or 10,000 units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. Don't forget to join us in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group where we talk profit, share resources, and ask podcast guests follow-up questions after the interview. It's 10 o'clock p.m. 9.58. Close enough. That's the accountant in you coming out, brother. (laughs) We are in Los Angeles, and we're here today about less than 30 days out from when the NARPM accounting standards are going to drop at Broker Owner. How are you feeling? Seems like the most exciting thing that's happened this month. <laughs> it's bigger than that, though. I'd say I'd say in more than a month. I'd say for, for many months. Um, so I'm really excited to be doing this series with you, man. Three episodes leading up to Broker Owner, kind of walking people through all the time, effort, blood, sweat, and tears that went into developing the NARPM accounting standards, it's kind of surreal to, to be here. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about excited, being excited about accounting standards, people can think that you're trying to psych yourself up or psych your audience up for yeah. something that's inherently boring. But right. as we've dug into this uh, stuff over the last 18 months with our benchmarking study going back into 2017 and 2018, man, the the reality of the way that clarity on financial performance can reshape the way you think about your business, I think actually is truly exciting. We've had over the last 18 months, as we've dug into this data with our clients, tons of light bulb moments that are really rewarding as people, as our clients, as people all over the country, regardless of their market, get clear on what possibility is, the possibilities are around financial performance. That's that's exciting and we've seen a lot of change 
as a result of that clarity. So I'm actually, I truly am excited about seeing this being released to the broader industry. Absolutely. We've seen some really transformative moments of folks as folks have had the opportunity to get clear on where they're at on a relative basis. But let's back up here before we dive in and talk about some of the specifics of what's actually included in the NAS. When we just talk about the original motivation and the intent, it wasn't around accounting, right? I, I don't know about you, but to me, there's an aspect of accounting that is still a functional required necessity. Mm-hmm. But then there's the finance aspect. Mm-hmm. And that's where the money is happening. That's where the money is made as an accounting guy with that that background. How do you think about the two sides of this conversation? You know, it's interesting that a lot of what people want, if you look at studies about what people get from their CPAs and what they want from their CPAs, uh, what people actually want from their CPAs is insight into financial performance. Um, There's this assumption that the guy who knows the most about my numbers, who's looking under the hood every, at the end of every year, should be able to tell me about something about how my business is performing. But if you look at the surveys, people are usually quite disappointed with the level of insight that they get from their CPAs. And I think the result of that is that people have come to believe over time that, well, okay, maybe accounting, the only thing it's really good for is filing taxes, keeping me out of trouble with the IRS. But we truly believe, and I think have through this endeavor experienced the reality that the primary use of accounting, the reason you do accounting is so that you can understand the true financial performance of your business. And in addition to that, understand the true specific individual financial drivers of that bottom line performance. When you get good data in the books, when you get your accounting done in a clear way, the business model that's driving your business profitability or lack of profitability becomes clear. And to me, that's the reason you do accounting. So the goal of the NAS is to provide more standardization to make it easier to do this relative cross comparison. But in the process of getting in line with any kind of a standard really involves a lot of radical cleanup Mm -hmm. on how accounting is done. You've been inside of a lot of property management companies books, I know you've seen a lot of variants. I mean, you can speak to that firsthand. You get 10 different companies and they're doing things 10 different ways. What's that been like to kind of see the the, pro- the progress as, as some folks have begun adopting this standard, even though it's really in the early stages? Well, I think the, the context here is that to a certain degree, you know, a lot of people have talked about the fact that the residential property management industry has been for a period of time, a little bit like the Wild West in terms of standardization. And, you know, there's a lot of people doing things in many different ways. And we see that in accounting. I mean, we've seen charts of accounts that have 80 lines. We've seen charts of accounts that have 400 lines. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen people who just run a pretty streamlined property management shop out of their books. And we've also seen people who run rehab businesses, maintenance businesses, and believe it or not, gun dealership businesses out of their property management books. So there's a ton of variety in the way the business, the, particularly the financial model of the business can be structured in the way that's reflected on the chart of accounts. So to that end, you have a lot of variety in the way the business model can be structured. And then you just have kind of a lack of understanding of how to structure a chart of accounts. Ultimately, you need to have a reason 
uh, for structuring a chart of accounts a certain way. What am I trying to make clear from exactly. the way this chart of accounts is structured? What we are trying to make clear is bring clarity around what are the constituent elements of the business, which primarily has to do with where's the money coming from, and then what are the relative cost structures uh, related to those revenue sources. So we're trying to get clear on what are the key components of the business and how are those driving profitability respectively. So we're trying to do this in a way that is really finance oriented. And to some degree, that involves being fairly agnostic about the operational level minutia within the business. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, money is money, labor is labor. And while it's really interesting, fascinating, enjoyable to kind of wade into some of those industry specific conversations, if the financial performance conversation that we're having is overly myopic in focusing on those industry specifics, we lose out on some of the best practices and the context that is brought to bear on any industry. Yeah, I mean, when we think about business model, I think the first conversation that we would tend to have, you know, after the session's over in the hallway is something like, well, are you departmental versus portfolio? Which really is a very narrow view of the overall business model. That's 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 an that's an uh, an operational model relative to one aspect of your business, which is the labor. What you need to look at in terms of ultimate profitability driving, in terms of what drives profitability on the broader scale, is the financial model of the business, and that's a lot of things related to: Are you doing maintenance? Are you doing brokerage? Are you doing just property management? And then within each of those specific revenue streams, what is the the stream? What is the structure of the fees? What is the cost structure? So, getting a bigger picture view of the overall financial model of the business is really crucial, so that from there you can understand what is working, what's not working, and what do I need to change to reach the new levels of possibility that I'm now aware can be achieved based off of the benchmarking data. So the point that you make kind of in large part highlights what underpins the work that we do in consulting with clients, which is really just peeling back the onion mm -hmm. from one layer to the next over and over and over again. And that starts with segmentation for the different functions of the business so that we're not conflating mm -hmm the thing as a whole with how it's making money on the individual constituent pieces. And we see that happen quite a bit when we'll get into this in a bit, but in the actual benchmarking study, the overall average level, level of profitability was low enough that what we observed was that in many businesses, there were there was one or more aspects of the business that were more or less being propped up mm -hmm. by the others. And there was just a lack of awareness because it's all kind of being rolled up together. So let's start off just by kind of giving a broad overview of the different sections of what is included in the NAS. The first being the chart of accounts. This is the real infrastructure, the meat and potatoes of how this standardization is actually accomplished. This took a fair bit of effort. A lot of thought was put into this. Like we said, 10 different books, 10 different ways to actually structure a COA. Can you walk me through some of the high level thinking that went into how this COA was structured and, and what we were going for here. Mm -hmm. Well, as you said, the, the chart of accounts really is the foundation of the standardized accounting because that's really, you know, you've heard the phrase, obviously, with your software background, garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. Same same with accounting. And so the chart of accounts 
if people adhere to it, provides a framework by which you don't have garbage in, and as a result, you don't have garbage out in terms of understanding your financial performance. So that's the foundation. The priorities that we're trying to balance as we structure the chart of accounts were, first of all, a standardization. Uh, there has to be a chart of accounts that works for a variety of businesses and a variety of, of, of structures within the industry. Again, we've already alluded to the fact that you can do property management in a variety of different ways with different ancillary streams of revenue. So we have to have a, a chart of accounts that accommodates for that. Most people don't have a separate set of books for their property management stream of revenue and their brokerage stream of revenue and their you know, maintenance stream of revenue, whatever that entails. A lot of times those are combined. So we have to have uh, a, a framework that's flexible enough to accommodate the various models that are out there. And then within that, we also have to have enough standardization so that there can actually be cross comparison. So you have to accommodate the different business models. You have to have uh, standardization so that there's, we're talking you know, similar terms, similar definitions around uh, main categories of income and expense. And then at the end of the day, if we were try to try to uh, account for every possible way of categorizing something with everybody's preferred levels of granularity, that would just balloon the chart of accounts right. out of control. And right. So within the system, we have to provide a way where people can customize it without losing the standardization. So those were the priorities that we were working through. And at the end of the day, between the balance sheet and the income statement, we're talking about around 300 lines for the chart of accounts, which, which may seem uh, really long, um, but that is because we're accommodating typically you know, three or four different revenue streams. And so part of what we're providing users with is a way to customize the chart of accounts so that they're only getting what they need in terms of a chart of accounts to use in their QuickBooks or whatever. So for example, you know, we have a focus on residential property management. Some people also do HOA management. Some people do commercial property management. Some people do short-term rentals. Uh, we have accommodations for all of those, but if you don't do those, then you don't need those lines in your books. And so there's, uh, we're gonna provide a framework for being able to strip out those unnecessary items. So, um, that's that's the overall that's the overall framework um, when it comes to the flexibility aspect what we've done is provided a framework where you have a baseline standardized chart of accounts and then within that framework you can add sub accounts and so if for example you don't like to roll up all of your tenant paid fees into one account and you'd like to have more granularity on those tenant paid fees, instead of forcing that granularity down everybody's throat and making them break out NSF fees and and late fees mm -hmm. individually, we have a framework by which you can actually add up to 99 sub accounts for every single chart of account line that we've provided in the standard. And so if you want to have, you know, 50 different lines for all of your software vendors, <laughs> exactly, you can do so. So that's that gives, uh, I hope, a bit of an overview in terms of the structure. Um, in terms of the basic categories, we have revenue, we break revenue down into property management income, maintenance income, brokerage income, and then within 
property management income, we have the main category, which is residential property management income. And then the secondary category would be uh, other property management income. And within that, we have uh, categories for commercial community associations and short term. So that's the revenue side of things. In terms of the expense side of things, we divide expenses into about six buckets. Those buckets uh, are, first of all, facilities. This is your building, the cars parked in front of your building, the desks in your building, the computers on the building, etc. Or computers on the desks in the building. Um, then we have uh, new owner advertising. One of the things that is a big topic of discussion in the industry these days is growth. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to provide a real clear framework for how to do uh, accounting around your growth expenditure so that you can, on a channel-by-channel -channel basis, get really clear on what your unit acquisition cost is. Mm -hmm. and are you getting an ROI on that unit acquisition cost that merits uh, what you're spending? So that's the second main category is new owner advertising. And then we move on to... Uh, two categories of labor, direct labor and management labor. Direct labor is important to distinguish from management labor because it's really the variable portion of the labor. It's really what scales with the business. Certainly management labor grows as the business grows as well, but not in the same way. And so it's important to distinguish those two so that you can understand is your labor scaling efficiently as you add more doors. Uh, direct labor, very simply, is anybody who spends 50% or more of their time providing direct tenant or owner-facing value. So we have facilities, new owner advertising, direct labor, management labor, and then the last major category is uh, other operating expenses, which is essentially everything else. So this would be all your dues and subscriptions, your travel costs, your bank fees, your... Um, you know, vacancy advertising, a variety of things like that. And then the last two categories uh, would be outside of residential property management, and these would be expenses directly related to an in-house maintenance operation or a brokerage operation. So hopefully that provides a little bit of uh, an overview of the chart of accounts. That was a mouthful. So this chart of accounts included in the NAS really is the Rosetta Stone that allows for the standardization and the cross comparison. And we know what it looks like to not have this and to go after the standardization. That is what took place when the original benchmarking study was performed. So winding the tape back there a little bit, that initially involved starting with about 80 companies paired to, down to around 50 companies that had clean data. And in that situation, rather than having everybody on the same chart of accounts, we had to map a bunch of unwieldy chart of accounts back to a common standard. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of effort. You're not exaggerating. <laughs> not exaggerating. Yeah, over a thousand hours of effort. And just to get to the baseline of data parity. That's not any yeah. analysis. That's just to get to a point of data parity. So ultimately, the industry adopting this chart of accounts is what is going to make or break this initiative. And this is gonna take place over multiple years. There's gonna be a lot of education, a lot of facilitation, but part of that does involve answering this question around, do I convert historically forward-looking? How do I go about doing that? Give me just kind of a rough overview on the basic approaches that somebody can take that is interested in adopting this chart of account, but is kind of wondering like, how do they go about it? What are my options here? Yeah, so obviously the uh, 
value in doing a historical conversion, and by that I mean is taking data from the past and all of your transactions for 2018, for example, and recategorizing those according to the NARPM accounting standards chart of accounts would be so that you could actually have a little bit of a historical data pool to work with if you wanted to say, for example, compare your metrics to uh, the benchmarks tomorrow. Uh, you don't want to wait 12 months to do that. Doing a historical conversion, not only importing the new chart of accounts into your accounting software, but also reclassifying transactions to that new chart of accounts. The benefit of that is that it gives you immediate analysis and immediate understanding of where you stand relative to the benchmarks. Mm -hmm. That's a fair amount of work. Um, it's, it's, it's actually a lot of work uh, because we're talking about you know, a lot of people dump their payroll into their books in one line item, and we're talking about breaking that out. Untangling. Into, uh, you know, a number of line items so that we can get clarity on the way your labor is structured. So um, that, is, that is the benefit. It definitely requires work, and um, that's something we can help with for sure and, and want to facilitate so that you all can get insight out of your data. Um, but bottom line, uh, you just need to import the chart of accounts with a CSV import that you can download from our website and determine from there if you want to just start booking all your transactions into uh, the new chart of accounts or if you want to do a little bit of a historical reclassification of uh, previous years of data so that you can have clarity on past performance. It's up to you. There's a lot of value in doing the historical reclassification, but that's not required. Got it. So. Let's pivot to talk a little bit about some of the metrics and definitions that are included in this document. This is another one of those watershed moments where rolling out some standardized definitions for common financial metrics, not operational metrics. We're not wading into um, the minutia of operational KPIs, but we are really squarely focused on providing some clean standardized definitions to common financial numbers when we waded into this initially, there was just there's an always an endless stream of numbers and things that you can track. Mm -hmm. We're trying to distill this down and to really focus on what actually matters. Walk me through some of the the high level um, metrics that folks can take from this to really get a new level of clarity in their business without being overwhelmed with tracking a thousand new things. Yeah, well, maybe just to back up and, and talk about the. Uh, philosophical approach here. The, as we discussed, the chart of accounts provides the baseline foundation for understanding financial performance. And then based off of getting all of the income and expenses into the right buckets, we can now have a framework for having a discussion around precise metrics. And what I mean by that is, you know, we'll talk about a term like revenue per door. But the reality is, is revenue per door can be calculated probably literally 15 or 20 different ways. Mm -hmm, right. Are you including brokerage in that? Are you including uh, just brokerage transactions from owners and tenants under management or all brokerage transactions? Are you including maintenance in that? Are you including just maintenance markup or all of your in-house maintenance operations? Well, what if you don't have in-house maintenance operations? How do you then compare your revenue per door to someone else? who doesn't have, you know, he, mm. the, 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 and the discussion is endless. So, it's a borderline useless conversation without these underlying absolutely. common standards. It absolutely is. I had a conversation with someone recently who said, you know, we just did an analysis and our, our profit per door was like, you know, $78. And I'm thinking, there's no way 
that your property management profit per door is $78 unless you're a very, very special bird. Um, and maybe this person was, but come to find out he was including all of his brokerage, you know, transactions in that. So um, all of that to say, uh, getting clear on exactly what version of the metric we're talking about is really important. And we don't venture to say that we've defined the correct version of the metric. In fact, we didn't feel like we could do that. And so what we've done is provided what we think is maybe a primary, uh, perhaps most simple version of the metric. And then within this document, provide you with five variations of the metric so that you can have a conversation with someone about what is your revenue per year right. with brokerage and maintenance. But that distinction is important or else the conversation is meaningless. So we're after clarity and consistency, not dogma over what number you need to use. Absolutely. We've put forward some defaults, but there are um, alternates to a lot of these numbers to where if you want to track this on a more specific way, you can do so. But the point is that there's some real standardization. So, Denny, why focus on the financial metrics and not operational KPIs? People love to throw, on, throw around operational KPIs. Why is all this really focused on the financial side of things? Because if you don't understand how the operational KPIs tie back to the financial KPIs, you'll not understand how the operational KPIs drive profitability. You have to understand the financial KPIs in order for the operational KPIs to have their true relevance, which in my books is, I mean, what, what are we trying to do here? I think we're trying to drive profit. Absolutely. So that's, that's, that's why it's important. So let me give you an example. You might have an operational KPI around how many doors a property manager manages. And maybe you have a dogma around that, but maybe you also have a habit of really overpaying your property managers. All of a sudden, your dogma around every property manager should be able to manage 160 doors or whatever it is, is, is a little less valuable because it, it doesn't have the financial framework that mm -hmm. ultimately tells the right. story about right. whether or not your business is driving a, a, a profit. In other words, if you can find a way of finding cheap property managers because your systems allow you to hire kids straight out of college with no property management experience. Maybe you can drive a profit only managing, you know, with each property manager only managing 80, 100 doors, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But you have to have the framework of the finances to really know if your model's working or not. Yeah, that's really well said. So profit tends to get lost in the fog of operations where people are wanting to really focus on these conversations like, well, how many doors should a property manager manage? Which it may be interesting, fun to talk about, but and for optimizing for profit, what that is getting at, but just shy of, is cost, labor cost, relative to revenue. Yeah, That's the meaningful conversation, mm -hmm. and you can skin that 20 different ways. Mm -hmm. FTE, VA, remote, in-person, you can structure it a million different ways. That's the level of conversation that's going to lead to the actual financial outcome. We're going to wade deeper into the metrics and definitions into a separate podcast, but there's just one example of... Um, some of the thought that went into this that I wanted to call out, and that was around focusing on unit metrics. This is an example of how this is tailored to the industry. There are terms like customer lifetime value that in many ways kind of have a, a software SaaS background or mm -hmm. connotation or uh, e-commerce, for example. When applied to this industry, though, customer lifetime value is ambiguous. What is it talking about? It's talking about the lifetime of the owner 
That's not really the focus here. The focus here is on the unit, the unit lifetime value. Any other kind of commentary on on how that actually is is meaningful? The, just the obvious point that doing an analysis at the unit level allows for comparison between companies of different sizes. Mm-hmm. So that's to me the the basic you know, one of the basic benefits is I might be at four hundred doors, you might be at six hundred doors. Our revenue is going to be different. But at the end of the day, we can talk about what our unit lifetime value is because that's a common denominator. Um, I think in addition to that, it also just clarifies the – it brings the, the financial discussion down to a level of granularity where it's really actionable. It's hard to know what to do about the question of how should I get my revenue from 400000 to 600000 or $1 million to $1.2 million. That's – it's a very big kind of nebulous discussion. It's a lot easier to talk about how do we get our revenue per unit from mm-hmm. 100 to mm-hmm. 155. That is a tremendously valuable actionable. Convers- valuable conversation and very actionable. So I think that doing the analysis and having an understanding of your business model on a unit basis really drives a level of clarity that can drive a, a level of unprecedented change that is truly exciting in a property management business. And a lot of that is actually displayed in the benchmarking study. The information there tells a beautiful story that really shows the nexus and the gap between unprofitability mm-hmm. and really losing money on property management and having that aspect of the business stood up and propped up by maintenance, mm-hmm. brokerage, et cetera, versus the folks that are swinging on the on the other side that are killing it and are making yeah. a great uh, profit. And profit is the reward for being the owner of the business. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just owning a job, a stressful job with a lot of risk and a lot of potential uh, pitfalls. So when we talk about some of the information that's in the benchmarking study, kind of winding back and talking about that story, originally, you and I were in Puerto Vallarta with a small group of property management companies in June of 2017. I'm still trying to figure out what you put in my drinks. <laughs> <laughs> it, it must have been something strong because it worked. It worked. That's all I know. So we went out there with a, a group of some really sharp operators, some folks that were willing to open up their books. We didn't realize how sharp they were. That's yeah, you're absolutely right. We figured that out after the fact, after actually, but I think it kind of goes hand in hand, right? I mean, the fact that they were willing to crack yeah. open their books and the transparency, yeah. um, that was a real game changer. So we had that initial meeting, and the seed of thought that germinated from that initial event was hey, what if instead of doing this for five companies, we did it for 50 and then maybe eventually 5,000? Out of that came the initial work on the benchmarking study that started in November, around, let's say, say November, the end of, toward the end, last quarter of 2017. Massive amount of work. And this is one of these classic examples of like biting off way more than you <laughs> yeah. actually understand at the time. And it's a good thing because if you knew, you yeah. probably wouldn't have done it. Ignorance truly was bliss. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. But what that led to was being able to publish a document that painted enough of a picture to, um, I think, help the NARPM 
board kind of see the full scope and size of the opportunity and really get excited about building something more than we could do on our own. We were capable of really stretching ourselves to do the benchmarking study. Mm -hmm. We were not capable of rolling out an industry-wide accounting standard. NARPM is in that position. Mm -hmm. They got behind this, which is incredibly exciting, and brought us in to actually develop it. When we look at some of the data that was actually in that benchmarking study, for you, there's there's a lot of charts. Admittedly, there are some charts that are going to be a lot more meaningful and relevant than others. To you, which of those, like what what is one chart that tells the story that you think is most emblematic of the opportunity for this industry? Ooh, that's a good that's a good question. Um, I think really it's the segmented view of profitability, and I'm just going to pull this up here so I can give uh, everybody listening exact numbers. But it's the, the first step in any financial analysis is to understand the average, right? I mean, you take 50 different numbers and you throw them in a pot together and you get the average. The average is not super exciting because who wants it to be average? Right. Um, for example, profitability in the industry we discovered to be an average of 6%. Um, not super exciting. Um, that is something that is a, a brings up a whole other conversation, which is the discussion of adjusting for owner compensation. Maybe we can talk about that uh, on the uh, on a separate show. But uh, after we adjusted for how the various ways in which people handle owner compensation, we discovered that the average profitability is six percent in the industry. But if you look at a segmented view of profitability, what you'll find is that the top 25% of performers are making bank. Their average profitability is 25%. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go do an analysis of business models, you know generally what you're going to find is 5% profitability, your business is sucking air. Um, 10%, uh, you actually got a decent business. 15%, look, look out for the competition. In this industry, we have many companies that are either at 25%, have exceeded it in some cases, Mm -hmm. or are on their way, and they have a clear roadmap as to how to get there. So that, to me, was one of the watershed charts, was peeling back the onion and discovering what is the possibility when it comes to profitability. Once you understand what's possible, that it's really your business today, not today, but your business could do 25% profitability, are you really going to be satisfied with 10% or 15%, whatever it is. And if you're not, then the next question is, well, what drives profitability? We'll talk about this on a separate show, but from our experience digging into these benchmarks, we've discovered that there's really five or six key metrics that drive profitability. We'll talk about those on a follow-up show. But that to me was one of the most exciting moments. Yeah, I love that. And what you said really resonated because I think that is kind of the classic archetype for a lot of the most successful clients within Profit Coach is that they get to that 25% marker greater and then they bring it back down with aggressive spend on sales and marketing because they have permission to do so. They spend... In some cases, an amount of money that, you know, normally we would maybe have some concerns about. But when you have that level of margin, you've got freedom to make those decisions. You've got freedom to make some mistakes and have some errors and to pay some tuition on the growth side of things when you have that kind of margin in place. Let's talk 
and kind of close things out with this initial overview episode of the NARPM accounting standards by talking about the financial controls guide. This has got to be one of the things that I am most excited about because it really gets at in some ways, the dark side of the industry. Let's talk a little bit about what is unique about finance and accounting in this mom and pop industry as compared to any other service industry. You know, when people think about the difference between a mom and pop industry and, uh, you know, something that's more sophisticated, they might compare a mom and pop industry to something like Wall Street because like financial management is often perceived to be like the pinnacle Mm. of a business model. Well, what you need to realize about the property management industry is perhaps it would be better viewed as a financial management industry. What you're doing is you're managing assets, you're managing dollars in bank accounts and lots of them. You are a fiduciary regardless of whether or not you identify as that. And there's a disproportionate amount of financial responsibility in this small business because of the nature of what the business is. Um, Having a a million dollar company with many millions of dollars in a trust account is an unusual circumstance. Mm -hmm. But that's the reality in this industry. And that reality brings up the uh, a lot of exposure in terms of both fraud risk um audit risk and just plain ignorance and errors within the management of that money the difficulty is that entrepreneurs by nature are generally not accountants in fact it's a little bit of an oil and water relationship Mm -hmm. they generally are resistant to the minutia of day-to-day bookkeeping which is a problem if you're running a financial management business. So that is the dynamic of the industry, and that's why this financial controls guide is, I think, so so crucial. So in many cases, the accounting department is kind of viewed as the rain cloud in some ways to the entrepreneur. That exactly. The entrepreneur <laughs> wants to go out and yeah. do big things and have a vision, and up here comes the accounting guy telling me what I can or cannot do. But this guide is written for the entrepreneur. This guide was not written. This guide is not explaining the minutia of how to do a triple tie out. Yeah. This is not meant to just forward on to your accountant and say, good luck. This is written for the entrepreneur to understand at that high level. What are the things that you need to be aware of, regardless of how much you have the ability to delegate, no matter how far you get into business size, scope, you're, you're moving on, you're kind of doing a lot of delegation. We're excited about those things. And yet there is still a certain level of cognition awareness that the uh, the owner and the broker has to actually apply to the business. Like at a really high level without going super in depth, we'll do more of that later in another episode. What is that? What is some of those considerations look like? Well, let's just clarify the fact that it's not stupid people that get stuck with major financial burdens as sure. a result of absolutely of fraud or audits. It, this this happens to very well-meaning, very intelligent, skillful people. Some competent baller entrepreneurs. Yeah, uh, in many cases, I, I can relate to this personally. Yeah. Uh, people like me. People that are focused on the big picture, the vision, moving fast, and just allowed for a couple of um, little chinks in the armor. There was maybe a momentary lapse of judgment. There was too much trust. These are classic stories. When we actually end up getting to the point where we're talking to a client that has been through one of these horror stories, in most cases, it wasn't crazy, insane dereliction. It was more like kind of small circumstances that snowballed into 
uh, a really unfortunate circumstance. Yeah. So that's really where we start is telling stories. I think there's, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of them in the beginning, just to give you a, a sense, an overview of how things can go bad from a financial perspective, how you can get in trouble with the, um, you know, Department of Real Estate, how you can have issues related to fraud or just mismanagement, just, you know, good human error, um, good old-fashioned human error. So uh, that's, which we, we give you a little bit of a perspective of what are some of the different things that can go wrong and why you should care. So that's the first section. The second section is really just trying to boil down as much as we can. I think we do it in about five to eight pages. What are the essential broker owner responsibilities? What do you need to know? about financial management, what do you need to do, what do you need to manage, and what do you need to monitor. So that is the framework that we're working with, and we spell out some constituent elements in each of those categories. In addition to that, though, uh, someone asked me, you know, how, how far do you expect people to read through this? To be honest, it's a 30-page document, okay? So it's, it's, it's uh, you know, an hour read, whatever. It's an hour well spent. It's a very well spent hour. Um, I would say definitely get through the why you should care section. Mm -hmm. And once you do that, you'll probably want to read on. Uh, get through the essential broker owner responsibilities. And then thirdly, really, it, is, it really is essential that you get to the third section, which is uh, a, uh, a few pages on the corner cons cornerstone control of financial management, which is the reconciliation. We don't want to bore you with the details of how to do a reconciliation in your specific software, but you really do need to understand the importance, the framework around a reconciliation so that you make sure it's getting done. You make sure it's getting done by the right people. In other words, you don't want the people who could be cooking your books doing your reconciliation. Mm -hmm. uh, it needs to be done correctly of duties. by the right person and it needs to have the right review. That probably should be you or someone outside of the business that you can really trust to sign off on it. So that's the third section. And then the final section, if you really wanna go deep, is some recommended controls and procedures where we dig into the details of what we cover in, this, in the second section. Um, so that, that's, that's the framework of the document. And I just, I cannot emphasize enough that this is not accountants getting off on talking about the minutia of accounting. This is, this is written for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs, and this is really focused on responsible delegation. That's the name of the game. Yeah. We don't want you to be any more in the weeds than you need to be, but to the extent that you've delegated, we want that to be something that is earned on the basis of trust and knowledge of really kind of setting the benchmark and the standard of what these controls should be and then allowing your team to run with that. So we're excited about that. Yeah, in addition to that, it's giving you a framework by which you can sleep well at night. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're managing lots of people's money, you should have the confidence that your business processes, specifically your financial business processes, are structured in a way that there's routine checks and balances in place where you don't have to be worrying about this and you don't have to be you know, checking your bank balance every, you know, uh, every other few nights. Uh, you have a framework in place where... Largely speaking, this thing can run on its own, but running, letting it run on its own without the framework is what we're trying to uh, encourage you to not do. 
Well said. Well, we're about 30 days out. We're going to do two more episodes where we do a little bit more of a deep dive on some of the specific constituent pieces of the NAS, but excited to get this thing shipped at Broker Owner, and uh, it's been a pleasure working on this with you. Yeah, and I just want to give a big shout out to everybody who's contributed. First of all, to the 50 companies, the brave companies who submitted their data that got all this ball rolling. It's, honestly, this we wouldn't be doing this. If Absolutely. It, if it wouldn't have been for you. Uh, then we want to thank the um, committee, uh, particularly Brad Larson, who's headed up the NARPM committee, who's overse- uh, provided the oversight for this project. Uh, Brad was really uh, one who was pushing uh, for this project, and a big shout out to him. And then in addition to that, to everybody on the committee that contributed and other people advisors within the within the industry, specifically uh, Alex Harleen, Carrie Bunch, Marco Montes, and some others. So uh, thank you to all of you and uh, looking forward to getting from zero to 50 and now 50 to 5,000 in terms of a data pool around which we can have a whole new level of clarity and understanding around financial performance in this industry. Well said. I'd also mention the NARPM board for signing off. And lastly, shout out to Greg Crabtree the original mentor that really helped us kind of lay some some groundwork. I don't think we'd be here without some of the um, some of the things he taught us along the way as well. All right, guys, hopefully we'll see some of you in Vegas. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for more exciting, exciting accounting talk. Talk then. Bye. If you've made it this far, thanks for listening. Profit Coach is going to be throwing a party to celebrate the release of the NARPM accounting standards on Monday, February 25th to kick off Broker Owner. The details are gonna be linked in the show notes. We'd love to see you there.